Um, all right. Oh, the bloody bells. Is it Sunday? Yes. It is Sunday. Religion. <laughs> Interrupting God the podcast. Let's do our intro clap. Three, two, one. Oh, shall I introduce? Uh, Yes. Uh, Welcome to First Aid Lit. We are finally doing our first session in person, which is bonkers because 2020 has been obviously a strange year. First Aid Lit is a podcast that promotes the life-saving power of literature. We talk about books that you'd carry in your first aid kit for any situation. That's all I can remember of the intro. (laughs) Oh, I'm Nicola Shebby. (laughs) And I'm Angela Wiffenman. And good to say our names. <laughs> I'm finding it very strange to see your face yeah. in front of me and not on a little screen. We're actually looking into each other's eyes. It's very intense. Yeah. <laughs> we are obeying social distancing rules because we are, we are opposite sides of a table. So. Yeah, we should stress that we're not doing anything illegal right now. We're neither of us are showing any symptoms of coronavirus. So fingers crossed we won't infect each other during this recording. I mean, you've actually had a coronavirus test. Yes, which... that was not fun. They are no. Well, now there's a bit of a shortage as well so probably none of us will ever have to experience it again but yeah it's not not ideal but let's talk about books what are you mm. reading what do you have you been reading i'm reading everything under by daisy johnson oh okay which was a bookish shortlist last year i think and i yeah i think i wanted to read it because it's a book with some sort of i guess i'm going to see what happens in the story but it is a mystical elements in a sort of realistic setting and I wanted to read some more books like that because I'm writing a book. So those of you who haven't listened to the podcast before, me and Nick are on a writing course that we're currently on at the moment. To be fair, I don't know if we've ever even said that. I we think just... we've said it once, but maybe yeah. we, we might have cut it out. We just knows? pretended <laughs> we just fell into this podcast. Sure. But I was really, I'm really interested in sort of working out how people tie sort of mystical elements or science fictiony elements into otherwise realistic settings and in everything under there is this creature called the bonac and you're never quite sure whether it's a real creature or something from the imagination and i think that is a theme in daisy johnson's work she's recently released a book called sisters where there are some other sort of strange going ons um which again you're not really sure if they're real or in the characters' minds, I want to understand how people write that really effectively. Mm. So that's what I'm reading at the moment. So far, I am really enjoying it. And actually, when I was reading her bio, I found out that she's from the same part of the world as me, which is not very far from London, which is where we record this podcast. So she's from a town called Saffron Walden. Oh, okay. The East Anglia area, which is And is the book set in that region? I'm trying to think if it actually places the setting specifically... But yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure it is, and but I can't actually remember now whether they mention places by name. Mm. But yeah, I'm only about 50% of the way through, but I'm definitely enjoying it. And I'm, yeah, I'm finding it really interesting to see how she sort of weaves in these mm. sort of mystical elements and these more sort of gritty, dark elements. So is it more of a direct fantasy or is it more kind of like magic realist? Like um, you're not... I mean, I like the idea that you say about you don't know if the character's actually imagining it. Or mm. I wouldn't say it's either of those, to be honest. I don't mm. think it's definitely not fantasy. I don't think it's really magical realism. You're the magical realism expert. Because <laughs> I don't read that much magical realism. Yeah. So, not because I don't like it, just I just haven't. Well, um, someone on our course summed it up amazingly. Well, they said that fantasy is where the storyline's about the magic. And magic realism is when the storyline's about the real world, but mm. magic just happens to be there. And I just thought that summed it up really well. So I don't know if she her book fits into either of these yeah, categories. I don't know. 
I think it's probably more sort of like gothic horror oh, in a cool. way, which is much more true of her second book, which I might be talking about a little bit oh. in another podcast episode, so yeah. I won't go into too much detail. The Bonac in the story is, you don't really see it, it's hinted at, it's this thing that sort of lurks beneath the water. So it's a bit more sort of ghost story-like, but yeah, as I say, it's sort of my impression so far, who knows, like maybe in another few pages it'll become real but yeah. I, think, I think it's going to stay a sort of hinted at what about you what are so you doing so I I did that weird thing the other day bought a book from WH Smith I don't know if you've ever bought a book from WH Smith I, mean, I tend to avoid WH Smith just because I find it a really depressing shop I should not really say that in case <laughs> WH Smith if you're going to sponsor us one day <laughs> I, I'm lying I love you I don't think I've ever bought anything from a, from a WH Smith that hasn't been in a train station yeah, well oh, this was in a train station I should yeah. establish that <laughs> This was in Liverpool Street. And, in fact, I have it here. And now they're in the same room. I can hold it out like I'm in the generation game. So it's The Good Immigrant, which I'd heard of before. It's like a collection of essays by 21, I think, writers. So I'll just read from the blurb. It says, 21 writers explore what it means to be black, Asian, and minority ethnic in Britain today. So very recently, in June, we are in 2020, the whole Black Lives Matter protests were really being heavily publicised and quite a lot of people were recommending reading and this book, I, didn't, I feel like it didn't get recommended that much, but I had heard of it. And I think it's because it's a few years old. It got published in 2016. Mm. It's a load of writers and, and public figures talking about their experience with racism and kind of otherness in the UK. And then quite depressingly, you know, when you say like black and Asian minority ethic, it's kind of synonymous with, oh, racist experiences. Like mm. that's just what our country is. So you've got people like, you know, Riz Ahmed, um, Rennie Edo Lodge, who wrote Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. You've got Nish Kumar, you've got Himish Patel, you've got all these amazing kind of well-known figures and well-known journalists as well. What I liked about this book is they're all very different experiences. So they're all, um, you know, like sometimes when you read a book and it's very much about one, that author's specific experience, but obviously because they're all from all different um, parts of the world, you can see the kind of like perspective of mm. um, all these different... And are they, I'm just, I'm looking yeah. at the upside down, but I can see that yeah, it's all people in different industries as well. Because like, yes. Ms. Ahmed is an actor and a musician. And yeah, there's a few. I mean, writers. there's a kind of like a there's like a theme of like yeah, like media, I guess. But yeah, it is. It, it, they, a lot of them talk specifically about their jobs, and a lot of them just talk about their experiences overall. But I actually found the title quite interesting because I think it is a real thing. This kind of concept of the good immigrant and this idea that yeah, there are a few essays that I really liked, but the last essay by um, Musa Kwanga, who's a sports journalist and a writer and he his was more specifically about the experience of being a good immigrant and this idea that you can change people's minds about yourself and your race based on the way you act i mean there's a bit that i wanted to actually read a quote from his because i thought it was quite interesting where he talks about how he went to eton and he was very much had this thing of if i could go to eton and i could show i could kind of speak on behalf of all black people that i'm you know good and therefore that people would be less racist and his, and his kind of rhetoric was like these are the future leaders of, of the country and it's just so it's so heartbreaking but he talks about uh, as i got older i began to notice more and more that the very moment immigrants were seen as contributing anything less than wholesomely to the national effort they were viewed with contempt it was as if even though we had been born here we were still seen as guests our social acceptance only conditional upon our very best behavior but the front cover of the book talks about you know if you win a baking competition or you win the olympics and so you're British and you're allowed but as soon as you do as soon as anyone from your race does anything that's seen less wholesomely it's kind of cast this shadow across your whole mm. race and experience and I just thought that was very interesting and it's quite depressing that it was published in 2016 
Uh, and it feels like things have just gotten worse in the last four yeah. years because obviously we have Brexit happen, we have Trump, we have kind of the rise of this kind of nationalism across the world. So, um, but I would recommend, good good book, really interesting. Does it talk about this idea? I watched a video essay the other day about some representation of minority groups and looking specifically at the concept of the model minority and how that can be just as damaging a trope as things being very, um, sort of all immigrants are bad, but actually the idea that certain groups are model minorities, they're the good kind of immigrants. Yeah. And that can actually just be equally as bad because you then don't see the diversity of people as a group. It's like, you know, all Asians work really hard and become doctors and lawyers. Yeah. Which might seem like a positive thing to say about an immigrant group or a minority group, but actually is just as damaging because it narrows the scope of people's lives and what they see completely yeah it's kind of taking the nuance out of all of us and it's that thing as well where it's like when you're a minority group when someone who's a public figure from that group does something that's seen to be representative of the whole Mm. group whereas you just don't get that experience with you know white men you know if a white man and there have been a lot of white men in the news doing terrible things that's not seen as you know, oh, all white men are reflective of this one guy. Yeah. Um, whereas you could say, yeah, essentially the opposite for a lot of minority groups. Yeah. So yeah, I think it is that similar. And it, it, yeah, it kind of goes both ways. And and that's why I like about this book is that because there are people, you know, who are from Asian backgrounds, there are people from black backgrounds, there are people from like all different grounds talking about their experiences. You do get a sense of that kind of across these different groups. Yeah, good read. I'd like to watch that essay. It sounds good. Is oh yeah, I, I think I subscribe to a YouTube channel called The Take. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, I think they're, they're sort of short video essays about movies and tropes and things, and some of them, they're a bit hit and miss, but I like some of them. The other one I also like, which we, who we both watch, is Lindsay Ellis, and she yes. does much longer essays on lots of different topics. I love a good video essay. Yeah. It's become, like, the thing I've discovered pre-lockdown, but I think my YouTube discovery is that, oh, people actually oh make, God. like, well, decent... Uh, Videos if you've YouTube. got any recommendations, put them out there because I'm dying to see more. Uh, Adaptation Station. <laughs> Adaptation Station. I want to talk about Dune. The trailer just came out. So Dune is a novel by Frank Herbert, I want to say. It's quite an old novel, but it is considered a classic in sci-fi. And mm. the new film coming out, I think it was going to come out this year and maybe got delayed because of coronavirus. Though. So it's published in 1965, the novel... And it was made into quite a famous film in the 80s. Yes. David Bowie in it. Ooh, I don't know. I think it did. It sounds, it sounds very on brand for him. But now there's a very hyped up new adaptation coming by Dennis, Dennis Villeneuve. But he did uh, Arrival. He did Blade Runner 2049. Ooh, He's Arrival. a really cool director. The cast looks great. I think Timothy Chalamet as Paul is inspired casting. I've only read about a third of the book, but I think it's it looks like it's going to be really cool. And it's very it looks like very kind of heavy sci-fi like it's very fantastical very it's all about this planet and this control of this valuable thing called the spice and how it's all like these wars are fought over the spice and pulls kind of this air to this planet and gets and they're like these big worms that come out of the sand there's a lot going on it's a good i saw the worm in the trailer yeah i'm glad because i so i read I only read about a third of the book, so I didn't get to the point where the worms come in, but I was really I was worrying that the worms would never come in and they'd just be talked about. So I'm really glad to see from the trailer that the worms do make an appearance. I did just briefly Google, is David Bowie in Dune? And there's loads of questions on like Quora and Reddit being like, is David Bowie in Dune? So I feel like everyone <laughs> thinks he is. Is he? But maybe he What isn't. is the answer? <laughs> I can't, I don't know. I'm on IMDb and I can't see it. 
<laughs> I think maybe he just wasn't. Maybe there was someone who just looked like David Bowie. I feel like I would. Yeah, I feel like that would have been more of a thing. Well, there's no evidence that I can see on IMDb that David he Bowie might have been you. there. He might have been. Should we actually go on? We've been talking for so long. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about our theme mm. for this episode, which is what you would pack in your first aid kit to cope with or survive. <laughs> I'm not sure this is quite quite the right terminology um, to help you in your life as a woman. And mm. um, so we, really what we're getting at here, I think, or though we might have gone in slightly different tangents, I don't know, is mm. just really kind of literature and, and writings, I guess, about womanhood and what are the things that we've read ourselves that mm. have helped articulate what life is like as a woman. Um, I think as well, I mean, our, from our perspective, we're looking at it as heterosexual women and cisgender women and women with a certain level of privilege that plenty of women around the world don't have. But I do also think that's probably more what you'll find in a lot of classic literature is that sort of experience. Mm. Now we're getting more, I think, well, I'm I'm hoping more literature is coming out that's promoting different types of womanhood. But I guess more specifically for us, we're looking at our own situations as women Mm. and what we've read that kind of is that. I mean, I think whenever we record these podcasts, I think we have to always bear in mind the positions that we're coming from being through that lens yeah a lot of literature has been about that experience yeah. more but yeah let's crack in mm. let me just swallow my cinnamon roll no <laughs> no no for future podcasts maybe don't eat a cinnamon don't roll eat. while recording i don't know i like to eat um. some mango <laughs> okay so yeah i can jump in so i was trying to think of the way i was going to approach this theme I'm really intrigued to see if we have any crossover because, yeah. you know, as we said before, we don't tell each other beforehand what books we picked. So I think the books I've picked are a bit of a mishmash, to be honest. I was trying to think, am I gonna, am I gonna imagine an alien has landed on a like they're gonna become a human woman, you know, who has a similar life to me? Mm. What would I equip them with? Interesting. So I was thinking of it in that way, but then I wasn't sure if that was quite what I wanted to do with my selection or did I want to select books that I felt had kind of talked about my experience and and I was thinking oh maybe I could imagine I had a daughter what books would I give my daughter so anyway I went through lots of different thought processes so I've ended up with just a mishmash of books that are just kind of all of those things okay so I wanted to kind of have a book that referenced the sort of historic challenges of women and I've gone for like maybe kind of a uh, I don't know if it's obvious, but a very popular historical book, which is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Very good. I was um, thinking about including some Austen. Actually, yeah, I was torn between Austen and a Bronte, or like, you know, one of the kind of greats of English language literature pre-1900s, kind of, yeah, one of the sort of big female writers of the mm. time. And I went for Jane Austen in the end, because partly because Bronte is, well, all the Brontes are a bit miserable, and my alien might just turn around and leave Earth or, you know. I love the way you said that. They're all a bit <laughs> miserable. I mean, it is true compared. <laughs> um, it's a lot darker. But what I love about Austen's writing, and it probably I probably could have chosen any Austen book, but I went for Pride and Prejudice because I know it the best. Mm. And it is, you know, probably her most well-known work, I think. But anyway, what I love about Austen in general is just her ability to write so smartly about the position of women. And yes, almost exclusively all the women in her books are wealthy or at least you know upper middle class or upper class women of the time but she gives an insight into yeah life as a woman in that period the 18th century and you know i think does it in a way that isn't just miserable <laughs> no she's witty and she's funny but it's almost i think her ability to have those witty funny moments next to events that actually are pretty awful 
when you step back and think about it, is just so clever. You know, for a sort of perspective on Western women's life, you know, until fairly recently, I think you can get a lot out of a Jane Austen book. So I think most people probably know Pride and Prejudice, especially people who are very fond of English language literature, but to give a bit of a summary, and Pride and Prejudice is by Jane Austen. It's a story of the Bennet sisters and the Bennet family. There are five Bennet sisters and they all need to be married because the estate belonging to their father, Mr. Bennet, is entailed away from the girls because they are girls and not boys. Mm. So that means when the dad dies, the estate will go to Mr. Collins, who's a distant cousin. It's like Downton Abbey. I know. I haven't actually read Pride and Prejudice. Have you not? No. Isn't that It is great. I'm going to, it's on my reading list. I've got, I've recently Have you seen one of the adaptations? I have. I've seen the Keira Knightley one. Then, I mean, it's, it's, I think yeah. the one's I think you know, yeah, the story's pretty well known. Yeah. But carry on. Mrs. Bennet is the mother and it's her mission in life to marry off her five children and they all have very different personalities and but our main protagonist is lizzie bennett elizabeth bennett and she is smart and funny and clever um she's meant to be not ugly but quite plain and very bookish and and then into the local neighborhood moves mr darcy and mr bingley and mr darcy is rude and arrogant but incredibly rich and handsome (laughs) so all the women are like we have to marry Mr. Darcy, but he, t- yeah, he turns out to, be, out to be basically an arrogant <laughs> So, um, Lizzie... Wow, shocking. A man, isn't So, yeah, and so Lizzie Bennet is very um, disenchanted with this with this man, and she's... But throughout the book, some different events happen, and they force Lizzie and Mr. Darcy to look at themselves and each other in different lights. And maybe, maybe something turns out well in the end oh with, a, with a marriage and a big house if um, i know books i mean probably not <laughs> um so it's it's there just to give a bit of um historicity yeah historical context i guess historical context yeah. yeah to um to living as a as a woman in in britain in sort of western europe and as i said there are some there are some really actually quite dark moments that are presented in a kind of glossy way. So there's one of the sisters, the younger sister, Kitty. She ends up married to someone who is not very pleasant, but he convinces her to run away with him and to avoid scandal, they get mad. They, they're forced to marry or, you know, they want uh, forced to marry, they want to marry, but, you know, we as the readers are aware that this is not, he's not a nice man. So, you know, you're sort of seeing this young, naive girl being tricked into eloping with Mm. this much older not very nice man and you know she doesn't once she's once she's run away from home she's she's a ruined woman there is no Mm. other option she has to marry him or ruin herself and her family so there's moments like that and there's another bit uh there's another character who is a friend of the family called charlotte lucas and she is 28 and unmarried um so terrible get on the shelf absolutely terrible for her (laughs) But it, in that in those in that period, it was terrible. Mm. You know, she's becoming getting to a point where she's going to be too old to be marriage material, and so she ends up marrying someone who is silly and uh, uh, you know a bit horrible. And again, we're not meant to like him. He's not nasty, but he's just foolish and daft. And Charlotte Lucas is clever and nice and kind. So again, like this is someone who's 
through circumstances forced to make a decision about the rest of her life that maybe she wouldn't if she had more choices. And she settles, basically. She settles. It's so interesting because there are so many things that still apply to today's Mm. kind of rhetoric around marriage. And even, I mean, yeah, as we say, speaking from our lens of kind of living in this, you know, privileged Western country. But I've read a lot of that time period. I've, I've just going to make me sound really wanky, like English literature. Like I'm thinking of Tolstoy, so and um, Anna Karenina, and also Madame Bovary mm. by Flaubert. And that, and it, I think in both those books there is this kind of it, the protagonist is kind of taken away by this man who is kind of comes in and is mm. very charming and roguish, but is secretly a bit of an arsehole and a bit of a, and has there is that issue around you know eloping with these strange men who then effectively ruin you and it's just so interesting because it i guess it's kind of you see similar things in more modern relationships where you know people end up with people who aren't necessarily very Mm. need to go to therapy basically but the stakes are so much lower nowadays you know you might you might get your heart broken you might sit eating ice cream for a while but you wouldn't have this like oh you're a ruined woman or you're 27 and you're not married Mm. so you might as well die an old woman even you know when you think of um I've read somewhere recently that... How old do you think Miss Havisham was in Great Expectations? I think I've read the same thing as yeah. she. Because, yeah, in my head, she was, like, maybe in her 60s. Yeah. You think of this old woman, decrepit old... She was, like, 39, I think. Like, that... Oh, that just... I think the same is true of Mrs. Bennet as well. Like, oh, I really? think someone worked out in, the, in Pride and Prejudice, Mrs. Bennet is, is like... 40 or something because she oh, you know God. you have children much younger in those days yeah and yeah in the books and in the adaptation she's always represented as being a sort of like fussy old you know mum figure you know mm. yeah but part of the thing as well i always think is so useful about historical fiction for this is it teaches you how much has changed and how much you know women have fought for and won and how you know this the kind of changes around I mean obviously as I say we still do have some pretty bad attitudes towards marriage you know that kind of like the stigma of being single at a certain age or not having children and all this sort of thing but and the economic pressures of single them which exactly, isn't yeah. just for women alone but we both live in London and I was only able to afford to buy somewhere because I was in a partnership and I could get a mortgage with someone yeah you know I think that's the case for most people it's near impossible to buy a home of your own yeah on your own it is and also marriage is such a legal way of tying you to that person so your finances are very neatly interwoven and it's not this case of marriage just helps simplify that whole process but i think it is it is really good to know as a modern woman what sacrifices have been made in the past and therefore never to take anything for granted i think that's kind of how i'd apply it to the theme as well Mm. if you were to give it to your daughter you'd be like this is how bad it used to be. It used to be if you got to 28 and you weren't married. And it particularly, you know, we, like, we've we talked about it before, I think, but the thing around the fallen woman and mm. the idea, like, again, sorry to go back to Downton Abbey, but I was watching it not long ago and there was a character who gets pregnant and then the guy doesn't want to have anything to do with the baby and then she, like, basically has to become a prostitute mm. and it's just... And is shunned by everyone and seen as like this disgusting person who's completely tarnished herself. And yeah, attitudes towards sex and marriage and things mm. used to be a lot worse than they are now. They're not great now, but they used to be a lot worse. So yeah, yeah. I found that very interesting. Again, I'm not going to go into too much on this point because I'm going to come back to it later. But mm. I think it also shows that there is something we could go we could go back to if we weren't careful. And maybe not quite to yeah. sort of Jane Austen-y you know 18th century times but i think there are attitudes towards women are pretty hardwired into our society and i don't think it takes much to 
go backwards. Mm, I'm wondering now about your fe- your next book choices and whether I feel like I have a feeling mm. one of them one book might be relevant to that, but who knows? Any, I, says, I think pretty much any Jane Austen could be substituted into this because her she's concerned with with women, and I think probably also why she was dismissed as a novelist for a long time. Very popular with women, mm. but not really considered you know, a great novelist until much later. Which I would also say, in a literary world, very much the case still today. Yeah, that the wi- chiclet thing. Yeah, then. chiclet is supposedly light and fluffy and not very serious. Um, and I read I read an essay where, I can't remember the author of it, it might have been Jodie Picot actually, because she writes mm. a lot about this, because her books are often marketed as women's literature, when they're kind of really detailed, intense, legal stories a lot of the time. But anyway... Yeah, when a man writes about domestic issues, it's sort of, it's very literary, domestic noir stories. When a woman does it, it's chiclet. Mm. Um, so yeah, anyway, so Jane Austen... Relationships as well. Yeah, yeah. So Jane Austen is writing predominantly about women and women's concerns. And yeah, it gives us an insight into that world in a, in a way that on the surface feels quite light. But when actually you see what happens to some of her characters, it really highlights the lack of choice that they had. And yeah... Part of me feels like it'd be quite nice to sort of swan around my estate with not much to do except go for walks and horse rides. But I think in reality, if that was all I could do, I'm not sure I would care. Yeah. Well, we talked about that before. I think that thing of like, when you don't have anything to do, you can descend into madness. Exactly. I'm sure we'll talk about that again in future. So Um, what's in your first... Yeah, what's your first book? Yeah, my first one's quite different to yours. So this is a book I read very recently. It's called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. It's become, I think, quite popular lately, but it was actually published last year. And it's a non-fiction book, but it's written in a very poetic style, I think. Mm-hmm. It's like written, it seems like a novel when you read it, and particularly the stories as well. So basically, Lisa Tadeo, she spent, effectively went around interviewing loads of women. Yeah. Um, and basically narrowed it down to three women that she was she wanted to tell the stories of. I think she went and actually lived in the hometowns of a few of them as well to try and better understand their experience and she kind of found it she narrowed it down to these three women so the first woman and i don't actually know if the names are accurate i'm guessing not but yeah, at the same time them, you mean yeah but yeah. at the same time um they're so detailed that i feel like if you knew one of these women you would read it and think oh okay that's my friend so and so um so the first one is this young woman called maggie who is taking a former lover of hers to court partly because well mainly because he was her high school teacher and then she had an affair with him when he was she was in high school and he was mm-hmm. her teacher and then the, the book kind of follows not only the history of their relationship but also the court case as well so even that I think that gives you a certain element of okay we you probably could go out of your way to find out who that person was is um, the second one is a woman called Lena, who's kind of a suburban mother, um, but still fantasizes about her high school boyfriend and has this kind of, wi- uh, you know, this weird relationship with her husband and mm-hmm. thinks a lot about her boyfriend. I won't say any more about her, just not to spoil it. Um, and Sloane is the third woman, who's this kind of very image conscious businesswoman who seems, I think, probably gives off that impression of being a woman who kind of has it all. She's got like a great job. She's got a very loving husband. She's very attractive and kind of has a high status. But she experiments sexually with other men and couples for her husband's entertainment. It talks a lot about this kind of avenue of that. So it's broadly a narrative about female sexuality. And, you know, it's very... It hasn't been criticised as such, but it's, it's seen as being very specifically about what we were saying about these women in these very privileged heterosexual lifestyles. They're all white, straight. They all have 
these kind of very dysfunctional relationships with men mm. um but it's talking more broadly about how men can sort of shape straight women's interior lives in often quite a callous way i think that's kind of the damning thing she puts on the whole book so why is it in my first aid kit as a straight woman myself i found it very heartbreaking to see how these women's psyches were so controlled mm. by their relationships their relationships with men i think the fact that you know so much of their yeah their interior lives and their stages is so caught up in this idea of how sexually attractive they are and how much the men in their life desire them and if it's the right kind of desire or not mm. just really just hit me in like a, a place that i think probably a lot of women would relate to and today she puts she kind of talks i say she paints quite a damning look on sisterhood and like female friendship she has this idea that women are very naturally competitive and how if women if one woman celebrates an accomplishment other women will sort of secretly mm. resent her for it which i yeah i found like we, we're both putting this face of like yeah, yeah is, that, is that true and i think again that's partly another criticism i think why on goodreads for example it doesn't have an amazing rating and because there's a lot of women read it and we're like oh you're kind of making some broad assumptions but at the same time she is talking specifically about these women so maybe that is the case for these women's socioeconomic circumstances but i think for the theme of being a woman it's it's quite a good reminder that all women have these inner lives and struggles and never to compare yourself or envy other women Mm. um but always kind of support them and look at you know, in Maggie's case, for example, so she's the one who was taking her high school teacher to court, you know, naturally it falls into this real thing of like, well, he's the teacher of the year. He's this loving family man. He's this attractive, great teacher who's got this wonderful family. And she's just this like ugly woman trying to pretend that she Mm. had an affair with him. That's kind of the perspective that the court, that the media portrays. So it's a good reminder to never, ever look at these situations with that sort of media eye, but always think about it more be more critical and one thing i found quite interesting as well is there's quite a lot of emphasis on women's bodies and how they feel about their often so much of their as i was saying because so much of how they feel is dictated by their relationships with men Mm. so much of it is about well have they put on weight or have they lost weight and how do they feel about that and how do they feel the men are going to feel about that and i just found that very interesting as well and yeah that's that's it really it's a good book i would really recommend it it sounds yeah quite controversial in some of its elements mm. then which is not necessarily a bad thing i think things with the things that are controversial are you know they, they generate debate and that's always good i think it's a shame that there's that element comes in about women being competitive because i think that is a trope that we see completely all the time in media you know in a lot of films um in, in tv series and I have certainly not found that in my own life. I mean, yes, I've been competitive against other women, but for no other reason than I have wanted a job or I've wanted to, like, perform at school or... Yeah. I will say, I mean, not to give any, like, life to this trope, but I will... I do think when you look at groups of women where... And I think this is what she's kind of saying as well, that she's like, quite often, these women's obsession with their relationships with other Mm. women and other men are often more about the issues with relationships with themselves. So it's more that they have or particularly there might be something in their childhood that they haven't properly explored and i do think there is an element of going back to your pride and prejudice of women who are generally have less to do and are living the more of like the housewife lifestyle housewife is that a word yeah like yeah Yeah, just housewife housewife (laughs) Um, supported by someone yeah like the stay at home and it's that there is that element of Mm. not that i'm saying boredom gives way to 
cattiness. But I have, I personally feel like I have noticed in my life that when, when people, not so much women, tend to be not very fulfilled in a emotional or intellectual way, mm. they might resort to being quite comparative. And you, yeah, you know, even fair. the sense that you think of like the way that people kind of show their lives on social media, yeah. and we've talked about that before, and how often it's the people who are a bit more fulfilled. Like, oh, I don't really know how to say it about coming across really No, I know, I know exactly what you mean because I think, again, this is anecdotal, but it's something that I've done when I've, in times in my life where I've felt unhappy and like I'm not going in the direction of my life that I want to be, it's been a lot easier to look at other people and think, oh, they've got everything together. Oh, she's doing so well and oh, she gets paid more than me. And yeah. Whatever. And now that I think about it, I don't know if it's just because my circle of friends is mainly female. Yeah. But I, I don't can't think of a single time I've compared my success to a man's success. I've always felt like I Very compare true. it to women's success, whether that's a boss or yeah, a friend or and not always in a negative way. I'm not always yeah. like, oh my god, why is she the manager? I want to be a manager. But yeah, I really now that I, I'm reflecting on it, I've definitely compared myself to women. I very rarely compare myself I to think, men. Yeah, and it's you know that's partly because of the way that we're conditioned to act from yeah. quite a young age and. I think what's so interesting about her thing about women's bodies as well is I remember there was an article and I can't remember anything about it. So this is really terrible info, but there was an article saying that go so say you could go to a family not a family a school reunion mm. twenty years later, and say as a woman you've got married, you've had kids, you've published a book, you've become a TED speaker, you've done all these incredible things, you've your career is soaring, your personal life is soaring, but you've also put on a few stone. And people will still look at you and be like, oh, she's let herself yeah. go. There's that sense of failure, whereas I don't think that's the same with men. I yeah. think they can have that freedom. And it is that thing of, even if you lose weight because you're unhappy, you're quite congratulated yeah. for it. And, yeah. Or being thin is seen as a sign of success, which I think is quite interesting because, and I think I read this in a tweet as well, saying that often when you put on weight, it's because you're happy, like you mm. have that relationship happy weight, or you have, you know, you're enjoying life more, you're enjoying food more. Not always, not always, but... We see we see this real thing as like if you're thin you're successful and if yeah. you're fat you're not and yeah. that's just so wrong in so many ways mm. and of course there are many thin people who are successful but there are also many fat people who are successful yeah. and and it's you know. definitely a message that I'm not going to say that men are completely excluded from that oh sure but yeah generally I think you know it does tend to be more aimed at women and yeah yeah definitely yeah. I think that's partly why the book connected with a lot of women as well because there is this real sense of these kind of secret inner life problems that you're not re- you're kind of scared to admit you're having these kind mm. of fears of failure and these and it's interesting how she does trace that back to you know your relationship with yourself yeah. and and often you know your female friendships are actually really important and if they're not being fulfilled properly you try and push yeah. it on men and yeah. it's it's a really good book i would recommend it and for that. i really like it really resonates the idea of living your life as a woman um yeah as a sort of a heterosexual i don't know actually maybe maybe it's I, i'm not yeah. sure if, if it matters whether you're heterosexual or homosexual bi or whatever yeah but yeah like sort of living your life through a male lens or, or through a that's not what i mean is it whatever you said about <laughs> um living your life in a way that you're trying to fulfill men's mm. ideals or like feeling like how did you describe it? You had a really good sentence. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. remember what I said. <laughs> it was great, though. It was really great. I'll uh, go back through the recording and be like, yeah, okay. And <laughs> we'll put that in the um, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, certainly, yeah, the desire that no matter what successes you have in life, if you're not 
married with kids or yeah. if you're not yeah if you're not in a in a relationship and you're not this that then it's still a, a bit sad and I actually I made a note about that in my own notes as well mm. in relation to another book but it's very it's still an idea that I think is a hundred percent perpetuated even today I think you you meet a woman and you know you might you look at her finger and you think mm, all right no ring why yeah is that? Mm. all that thing of being a certain age and being like do you have kids they might yeah. say no and you're like oh why yeah Ooh. even as younger women we still kind of form this thing of yeah. like, oh curious and it's because we're presented constantly with this, the, the idea that that is that is the goal and not that you can't do other things as well you know i think we get a lot more positive messaging now that you know women mm. can do whatever they want women can do this that, and the other but also you should be married at the same time. You yeah. know, should be in a, in a loving relationship at the same time. And like, just as a bit of story time, you know, I think that I thought that, oh, when I meet someone and I get married, then like, I'll be happy. And what I realised, because I did meet someone, I did get married, is that I'm very happy with him <laughs> of course, and my yeah. relationship. That's wonderful. But there were still things in my life that I wasn't very happy with, like my job, which I then decided to leave. And, you know, it, I think I had sort of even subconsciously bought into that myth mm. of, oh, well, you know, I feel a bit unfulfilled, but if I'm married, then I'll be fulfilled. Well, that's pretty much exactly what some of the women in this book have yeah. as well, this thing of like, and, and in a way that's like, they kind of, and it might be because of where they're living and mm. their town and everything, but yeah. it's this thing of like, that's all you can do. You can get married and then be a mum mm. and that's it. And that's like, you've hit, you've achieved your goal. Yeah. But then they get there and they think, oh, this is not at all what I thought it would be. And and partly why they're having these kind of like weird relationships with, you mm. know, these other men or thing, other things happening that it's like, oh, it's, it's this fear of like, oh my gosh, I thought I thought this was going to be it and this would be, yeah. you know, we can go back to the Disney thing of that being portrayed as like the, the happy ending, the end goal. You know, there's still a lot to do from mm. there, a lot of work and having kids in, in itself is its own, you know, complete, boggling mind thing so have you heard of um the trad wife movement i don't even want to know what that means obviously it's traditional wife it's obviously american gotta love gotta love the americans um and their strange outposts of but trad wife is like the worst thing you could it sounds like trash trad like tragic yeah um so yeah it's basically like a movement of women who want to revert back to sort of a 50s idealized role of a woman being a housewife having dinner on the table for the husband raising the children and what is endlessly frustrating about these people is they're like oh these feminists they want you know they want to force us all into into the work and like that is so fundamentally not what feminism is it's like no one's saying you can't be a trad wife you can just be be one like that's Only fine. Have these views. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's so true. And uh, yeah, feminism is about the right to choose. Yeah. And, oh my god. Exactly. Great. Good to know that exists. Uh, yeah. What's your second book? So my second book is. Um, I wasn't sure which one was my second or my third. It doesn't really matter mm, to be honest. I had the thing too. So I think I will talk a bit about. Yeah, I'll go for my next one being. So it's a, an essay, basically, an extended essay, mm. um, which maybe you've got on yours, I don't know, but it is We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamande oh. Ngozi Adichie. Famously featured in the Beyonce song. Flawless. Yes. <laughs> um, so I can't remember when I first read this. I could probably go back from my Kindle history and find out. But anyway, the essay came out of a... She did a TED Talk and then took that TED Talk and extended it into an essay and published it. So she's a Nigerian author, writer... 
and feminist. And the, yeah, it's a short essay, so it doesn't take too long to read for anyone who's interested in doing so. And it's sen- it's essentially kind of her view on why we should all be feminists and some reasons that she puts forward for that. And what I like about it is that it's a very contemporary view and it sort of takes a lot of the sort of counterpoints to feminism that we hear regularly and, and provides a rebuttal to those. So we often hear people saying, well, you know, women do have rights now. You can work, you can have jobs, you, you can... You know, you can, women can be prime minister, which they have been in this country, um, or president, although they to haven't varying been varying levels of success. <laughs> to varying levels of success. But yeah, so people will say, often say these things as a rebuttal to feminism, we don't need it anymore. Um, and she is able to kind of articulate some of the reasons why that's not a sound argument. Um, and she talks about why we should all be feminist emphasis on all so not just women men should be feminists mm. too that it sh- everyone should be feminist whether you're American or Nigerian or anything else um, and she talks about femini- feminist um, one of the, the first time she ever encountered a term feminist it was used to describe her and in an insulting way so I think um, she does a story right at the beginning where she talks about her her friend a neighbour when, when they're children he says you're a feminist and he means it as an insult and she goes and looks this up looks up what feminist means and she's like huh why is that an insult <laughs> I do think that men and women should be equal um, and she does talk about her experiences of growing up in Nigeria and being a Nigerian woman but these are absolutely like themes that resonate I think for everyone um, and you can see yeah you can see you can see yourself and you can see the same issues that I think we all encounter to varying degrees. So one of the things I quite liked about it and why why I would have it in my kit is kind of that element of what books might you give to your daughter if you had one mm. and to kind of prepare her for becoming a woman. And actually, in fact, I should say also, not just your daughter, because as Chimamanda says mm. to my sons as well, should I have any about, you know, how they should live as men and how they should interact with women. But she talks about how, yeah, it's not just vital to talk to our daughters about feminism, we should talk to our sons about feminism, and that we should raise our children in in different ways. And she says in terms of boys, which I absolutely agree with, um, she says that boys and men are in just as much of a cage as women mm. are because of the patriarchy. Toxic which is masculinity. Yeah. Oh. And it frustrates me no end that sort of red pill people, so sort of men's rights movements people, people who are, who think feminism is all about women taking over the world and actually men are now the ones that are mm. um, hard done by. But all the things that they complain about are literally the result of the patriarchy. Yeah. So like, I, I might have gone down a bit of a Reddit, red pill. So people oh, who don't gosh. know what, red, what the red pill or sort of men's right movement is. Um, it's So the red pill is a reference to... Um, the Matrix film, in which the- famously made by two transgender women. Just so, like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Women. Yeah, huh. um, you didn't know the Wachowskis. I had no yeah. idea. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So yeah, there was actually an art. Sorry to. No, sorry, there was an article recently. I forget which, with which Wachowski, uh, but she was saying about how it was in its own kind of um, subconscious way a metaphor for being transgender and this idea huh. that you could create an avatar of yourself and exist in another body oh. and I just love the idea of all these reddit bros being like no yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what I don't want it to be about because <laughs> they're bigots uh, uh, carry on sorry so yeah it was basically I was just explaining the red pill concept on on reddit and other sort of forums but basically it's, it references Neo in the matrix having to choose between a red pill which is knowing the truth about the world and that um the world is actually a simulation or the blue pill where he gets to just live in happy ignorance and he chooses the red pill 
And people who take the red pill in on these forums are people who be, who. Um, Such a stupid. Yeah, it's nuts. So they they think that men, particularly white men, are kind of the the most put upon group now, and that women get all these opportunities, and minorities now get all these opportunities because of affirmative action and all these scheme like you know BAME schemes and women's schemes and all of this, and actually we should accept that men and women have different roles and all of this. So anyway, I can't remember where I got, why I got onto that, but just like got into a bit of well, a you were talking deep about, dive about... Oh yeah, Chimamanda yeah. talks about how... Because I always think that too, and I think not to sound like I'm in any way allying myself with these MRAs and incels and all that, but I do think there is kind of a hole in the society for like responsible male role models mm. to these young men who are now learning more about the world and are feeling maybe a little bit bewildered, a little bit confused about just in that kind of awkward teenage boy kind of way because that's often when men get quote red pilled mm. is when they're teenagers and they go on the internet and they, they find this community of people who are like you know if you're feeling self-conscious and someone laughed at you at school because you're a teenager and these are normal things guess what it's women's fault come into our society where we'll love and accept you and we can channel all that frustration to women and that's what's really sad about it we're like if they had more positive male role models and you know toxic masculinity as a concept Mm. wasn't a thing and men were encouraged to show emotions and talk to people and so feminism is is massively helping men as well as women definitely and i don't think a lot of people understand that a lot of the complaints that the mres have are about about strict gender roles men more men die than women in their jobs because they have to do more dangerous jobs and oh men are the ones who have to go to war and all this and you think well yes because that's what the patriarchy says is that men should be doing man jobs and women should be doing women jobs and actually if we were weren't if we didn't have those restrictions then maybe more men could do inverted commas soft jobs and more women could do hard jobs but anyway it's very frustrating i don't know if it's a a willful ignorance but it's so frustrating because the the things that they're moaning out they moan about are the things that feminists moan about but yeah so getting back to we should all be feminists Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she talks about how we need to teach boys that they don't have to be masculine, that they can talk about feelings, as you said, and they, they can be fearful, they can be uncertain, and that is okay, just as much as we should be teaching girls that they can be strong, and they can be mm. all the things that we teach boys, but we don't teach mm. girls, all the things we teach girls that we should be teaching boys. Yeah. And the other thing that she talks about, which ties back into our sort of Pride and Prejudice chat, she talks about women who are a certain age, if they're unmarried that is a deep personal failure. Um, and no matter what other successes she's had, that that remains to her biggest failure. Mm. I think the other thing which I think is uh, something that we definitely don't do as much, possibly has changed in terms of school now, I don't know. But we talk, we teach girls, or, well, we don't teach girls that they can be sexual beings. We teach girls that sexuality is something that they kind of have and is is a stain Mm. so boys boys can be sexual boys can desire sex but girls can't desire sex and in fact their sexiness is is something terrible about them that they should hide Mm. um and she says that we praise girls for virginity but we don't praise boys for for virginity and you know we we the tropes in films and tv and stuff is boys having a girlfriend you know teen boys having a girlfriend is cute but a girl having a teen girl having a boyfriend or the dad comes out of his shotgun isn't mm. it funny well it's actually a really toxic it's really toxic <laughs> messaging a, have you ever seen the movie fear no oh my god do i want to no okay um, <laughs> <laughs> but it it feels to me it's like propaganda for dads to be like never let your women date any like your women sorry never let your daughters <laughs> date anyone god i'm objectifying women <laughs> it is such a movie of like 
how being a teenage girl and and having any interest in men or particularly having an interest in sex means you deserve all the horrible things happening to you. It's hilarious. You could watch it for the... Mark Wahlberg's sort of iconically hilarious in it. Um, and it's got Reese Witherspoon mm. and like a few other well-known actors. And they're all quite young and, you know, fresh-faced. It's all about how your daughter's boyfriend is going to kill her and you and the whole family. Oh and... <laughs> I mean, the name is kind of self-explanatory as well. I feel like that's not a spoiler. I, I mean, have a real hatred for men who police their daughters' romantic lives. I think it's creepy as hell. And I feel so lucky that my dad did not give two shits about who I was dating growing up. Like, yeah. obviously, if I was dating someone horrible, he would have been like, whoa. Me. But it was always a sense of, you're, you're living your yeah. life. I'm not getting involved. That's creepy. Yeah. I see these sort of stupid videos and stuff on Instagram or wherever and it's sort of someone saying I feel sorry for my future boyfriend because I've got four burly brothers and I think why are you letting your brothers have the say I mean in your relationships like they're not dating the guy well what's those creepy like wedding what they called cuffs wrist what am I talking about handcuffs oh okay (laughs) I don't know men's clothes um but they say like oh no you don't mean handcuffs you mean cufflinks? No, yes. <laughs> oh my god, it's like handcuffs and cufflinks are like really different. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. You do not get wedding handcuffs. God. <laughs> I was like wedding night. <laughs> I don't remember men's clothes. I don't need to. Um, but it's like you can get one for the father of the bride that says, mm. I loved her first. Like, really oh, like... and then like in some of these sort of ultra Christian areas in America, they have daddy daughter dances oh. and. I don't know. It's weird. There's a there's a line and it's kind of too blurry <laughs> for my liking. Oh god, I've never uh, danced with my dad. He's got two left feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just that the hangover of men owning women in yeah. some way and you know, in most cases men aren't fathers aren't literally selling their wives or whatever. Yeah, Sorry, selling their daughters. Even when men talk about their hypothetical daughters and I'm like mm. and you when men are like, "Oh, if my daughter grows up and yeah. has an OnlyFans, I'll disown her or something." And you're like, shut up. You don't even have this daughter yet. But I think that's something that the section in the book, in the the essay around sexuality, it definitely resonated with me because I've I've got a teacher friend and she says it's it's quite different now, the sex ed that they get in schools, in the UK anyway. Mm. And it is much more a leveled playing field in the sense of they teach girls and boys in similar ways and they sort of talk about I mean obviously I don't know exactly but I think more that that sex is something you can desire and stuff but I very much felt during my sex ed at school it was like sex is bad don't have it yeah (laughs) I I think my sex ed was good but I think it was it there was a real like clinicalness to it that's Mm -hmm. like this is exactly what happens at no point will you want it or enjoy it or for either sex you know it's just like this is baby making and that's it yeah, and I think consent was yeah. nothing either. Oh god, yeah, no consent. Like mm. I don't remember a single. I mean, maybe it happened. I just don't remember. But yeah, I, I don't think remember. We're, we're that luckily discussion. we're of the age where I think we just dodged the thing of boys our age watching porn. I mean, they did, mm. but I think a lot of boys it was now, not as accessible. Yeah, when you read, you know, Laura Bates' Everyday Sexism book and mm. stuff, she talks about how. She goes to a lot of schools now and the kids have very warped ideas of what sex is because porn is so... And, and yeah. a certain type of very degrading porn is so accessible to them. Yeah. And yeah, like, women in most porn, women 
rarely look like they're having a good time. Yeah, they really don't. <laughs> There's certainly not a much time being given to women's pleasure. It's very the focus is very much on men's pleasure. Yeah. So yeah, and in the essay she she talks about about that and that yeah, we talk about the dangers of sex to girls but not about their pleasure and desire mm. and we talk about keeping girls safe. In, in that aspect as well, but not how to kind of safely navigate sex, right? like things mm. like consent. The sort of final theme that comes out of the essay in general is that, and, and why I think the title is we should all be feminists and not just women should be feminists, is that, and she uses um, she uses sort of short anecdotes from her own life to, to kind of show this, but that men just don't see it. They mm. just don't see sexism. And yes, we live in, well, you know, for us living in the UK, we live in a pretty progressive society in general. You know, we... I can apply for any job I want. Like I can have my own bank account. I can pretty much live my life as I like. It doesn't mean that that women are free of of sexism. Like there are still things like you know there are places I won't go that men can go. There are mm. I am treated by men in ways that they wouldn't treat other men. I'm always sort of reminded of that when you know you hear your male friends and they're like, oh yeah, I just walked home at three in the morning yeah. from the bar, and you're like, oh, you can do that. You yeah. can just walk home. Like there was you a, don't have to think about that. There's a guy I used to work with, and he was like. I know it's kind of mad, but like, I really like going for runs at kind of midnight. I'll just go out for a run what? at night. And I'm like, as if that's an option. That's, that is, yeah. I mean, I it? wouldn't because I'd be in bed, but that's something you can do if you're a man. Oh no. <laughs> Some of the things that we experience that maybe don't seem out on their own a big deal, like catcalling. Or like your microaggressions. Yeah, yeah, like someone being, you know, classic thing being like, give us a smile. Someone's saying that to you, it's not the end of the world. You're not, you haven't been hurt physically. Like it hasn't impacted on, on your life. You haven't lost money from it or anything like that. But if you get that all the time, mm. and if the messaging you receive when you're out on the street from the moment you're a teenager is, your body is the thing that mm. that represents you and the only thing that people see is your body and you're judged by your body your body your body then you end you end up with books like three women well exactly where yeah. you obsess about your body because yeah. you if you don't obsess about your body you just feel very conscious of your body yeah like the number of men who are like oh catcalling is a compliment it's funny it's, though yeah because yeah, it is quite a hard one to explain but it's it, so hard to explain but you are right in that it it's about and i, I think i've read something a lot a while ago and this might seem a bit extreme but bear with me it's like it's sort of reminder that you're there to be looked at Mm. so it's almost like a a thing of you're allowed onto our streets as Mm. you know not saying hashtag normal men it's like a patriarchal concept of like you're allowed onto the streets to be observed there's no i mean it's objectification in the most purest Mm. form i guess it's very much because you're there i'm allowed to look at you i'm allowed to comment on you and we're allowing you on our streets so yeah. you can be there. And it's just, that really hits your psyche in a mm. whole, in a very complicated way throughout life. And I don't think that could ever really be. In the same way, I think that, I'm going back to the thing that you're saying about how men just don't really know it's happening. Mm. And, and this is no indictment on them. I think, you know, we are shielded from so many forms of racism yeah. that I can't even imagine. And the same, similar thing, I think, for men, where it's, it's not that they're willfully ignorant. Yeah. It's just that they've never imagined these sorts of things yeah. happening. Which is why the red pill stuff annoys me so much. Because I'm like, these men are walking around with so many privileges to them that other people are so denied mm. and they'll just never know. So they imagine this kind of like faux oppression in their head yeah. because they don't know what these real oppressions happen. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's just, you know, I, I don't see it. I don't experience it. So therefore I don't really believe it exists. Yeah. And also if I did experience it, I wouldn't find it that bad yeah. because I'm not being disempowered by it. So I don't see why you're complaining. Yeah. Um, men should be feminists. Yeah. 
And that's why and women should and be feminists. And fair play, going back to Beyonce quoting this essay in her song, pe- having these kind of figures like Emma Watson and, and Beyonce who are like very beloved by young mm-hmm. women, I think them coming out and being very open and being like, I'm a feminist and this is what I'm doing, I think that's really great. And I think a lot of, it helps erase that thing of feminism being a dirty word. However you want to feel about specific yeah. figures and their versions of feminism. But I think it's it gets rid of this idea that it's an insult and it becomes something to wear with pride yeah. and I like that. This brings me on to a very broad topic, which I want to save for the end, which I want to discuss the whole podcast episode about. But uh, shall I go to my second book? Yeah, you go. I think book uh, this is probably a pretty obvious one. It's The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Uh, I don't know. I thought maybe you might have it on your list. But... Um, I did. Well, I was thinking about having it on my list because I, I read it. Well, basically, I read it so many years ago. I'm not sure I can remember enough detail to talk about it. Uh, see, I had a similar thing, but I remembered enough. And I did also Wikipedia. Um, so I'm glad you're doing it, though, because it was on my potential list. <laughs> well, so Sylvia Plath's only novel, it was published in 1963. And I think it's remembered particularly because she sadly committed suicide after uh, the book was published. Or after she wrote the book. I don't know if the book was published posthumously. Um and I think it was considered semi-autobiographical mm. in the sense that the character's sort of experiences around mental health and suicide was mirroring past own experiences. So to introduce it, it follows a young woman named Esther Greenwood. Um, she does an internship at a magazine. Throughout the book, she's gradually wondering what to do with her life. Um, and she feels a real sense of fear about making the wrong choices. Mm. She eventually becomes depressed. She makes various attempts at suicide. She's in and out of hospital, in and out of treatment. Uh, and a big part of her depression is implied to be her lack of freedom as a woman and the kind of sexist societal expectations around her sex, marriage and career. And the reason it's in my first aid kit, I mean, yeah, we've covered it a lot on this to- episode so far. <laughs> but I think, do you remember the fig tree metaphor? Yes. Because that, I, re- I wanted to read it out because I think that really hit me when I read it. And I think that hit a lot of women. And I read it about the same age as Esther. I think I was maybe like... 21-ish? Yeah, I was exactly the same. I yeah. might have um, been keeping a blog at the time oh, and put the fig put tree the metaphor in, in my blog and thought I was like, I'm deep. so deep. But it <laughs> well, is, it's a good metaphor. Go yeah, on. so I'll read it out. Um, I mean, it's long, so I'll read like an abridged version. So, um, quote, I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. End quote. And then she talks about she talks about each fig being like one's a marriage mm. and career, one's a job as a poet, one's a job as an athlete, one's, you know, all these kind of different futures she might have. Quote, I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one they plopped to the ground at my feet. End quote. Oh, I mean, it's perfect, right? Yeah, it's, it's that real thing of these are all the options that you have, and this is probably a male thing too. But I think even more so with women, where it's these are all the options you have, but you only get one, and if you think about it too much, the rest will go, and you'll and you'll mm. forever live this life wondering what might have been, yeah. and. Oh, and it, you know, it has a real element of tragedy when you realise that, you know, Puff was feeling this too and suffering and the book so beautifully captures the fear of regret and the potential trappings of her life. Mm. And so then for her to commit suicide as well has really put this element of shock to it. But I did actually want to talk about, and this, um, this might sound like I've taken the piss out of your blog, but I'm really not. There's a Nylon article I read by Naomi Elias and she talks about how the book has become like a 
shorthand reference being kind of like young and emo in a way or in the sense that not that I'm saying your blog was at all but oh, I mean it was being vanished into the abyss but it's become like a, a shorthand reference for like a sad and overly intellectual sort of woman so I think she uses a couple of examples um, like in 10 Things I Hate About You I think mm. the main character seen holding it at one point and like Lisa Simpson's holding it at one point yeah. and it's like and it's, it's a real thing of ostracised female characters who have it and are like mm. deep and like I've got the book and it's so female it's always women having it yeah and I do wonder if that might be an issue in of itself it's very much seen as a book of women's pain and therefore as we talked about mm. maybe a little bit underplayed or a little bit like this is a this is a women's issues book yeah and it's often used as a prop in pop culture to describe these kind of lonely isolated characters uh, and I mean a quote from the article is that the bell jar has been diluted into a symbol of generalised female blues and I just thought it was a very interesting mm. example because I I mean I don't watch this uh, this article was very much about American pop culture yeah. so a lot of the references are familiar she talks about examples where they'll use it so it'll be like a character will be feeling a bit sad and they'll be like oh don't be such a bell jar like, come to this party and then they'll go to the party and have a great time and it's it's like is it diminishing it or is it good that it's being worked into pop culture in yeah, that way that's, it's that's, very hard to know and also you know the fact that yeah it's always girls who have it like yeah. teenage girls and what if a teenage boy was reading it what would that say I don't yeah. know yeah I mean I don't feel like that happens in the UK right like I, no, I don't I really, really hear people referencing it particularly and yeah no. maybe it is because she's an American author well but, one thing that did happen in the UK which I don't know if you remember is it got republished with an updated book cover a few years ago oh I do and it, that. it really caused quite a stir because the original cover was that sort of spiral which I can see in my head and then they they released a version which is like a basically like a chiclet cover like really? quote chiclet where it was like a woman looking in a mirror I think people lost their minds and like this is reducing this book about depression and mental health to just a thing of oh women I feel sad there was an element of trivialising it in the cover um, oh, okay. and I think that was in the UK so I've, I've just googled it because oh, I was yeah. curious if you go on news it's a, a woman putting on red lipstick yeah or something in a, in a compact mirror yeah that is an odd choice and even the cover. font as well it's like yeah. We'll, yeah we'll put a picture of it on Twitter but that is a strange choice for that book yeah really weird for the 50th anniversary yeah. vision as well Covers are interesting because it must be really hard to be a covers artist, I would say, first of all. Like, how on earth do you try and sum up a book in an image? But some books do it so well and some do it so badly. My pet peeve, just to talk on, and I I made a Twitter thread about this once, is pictures of flowers on books by Mm. women. And regardless as to what genre the book is or what the book is about, there will always be a picture of a flower. And I remember, I think I've got a copy of Beloved. You know, Beloved by Toni Morrison. It's got a picture of a dandelion on the front cover. And I'm like, why? 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 Why?" Yeah, and I I think with that cover, the bell jar being about what it's about, you know, mental illness and and the struggles of being a woman in a man's world. Like, I don't know who that cover's appealing to. Yeah, that's truly misleading people. Yeah, a woman putting on lipstick. Strange. Yeah. I'll share the link because, yeah, I do think, and I will talk about this later on, I think there is a, a certain thing to be said around how it is viewed as a very female book Mm. and it might be because you know as I say she is talking about how her so much of it is about her experience as a woman and the kind of trappings of life as a woman yeah but I don't know if it's read by men in the same way of connecting with the the character and the way that Mm. women read it and connect with it um but yeah let's go to your third one yeah my third one which I think I have trailed a little bit Mm. I've done teasers for 
and it's very bloody amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Hey, I knew it was coming. Which I was like was maybe an obvious one to include, especially in terms of timing. That links on so great to my next book, so we'll so we're all good. Then. Yeah. Well, I'll get onto timing in a minute because we're recording this like I think maybe two days or one day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, yes, yeah. and this has thrown a lot of Democrats in the US into sort of deep throes of despair because they're very worried that a yeah a new supreme court justice that's what they're called right yeah so a new supreme court justice will be voted in who will be um republican voted in be assigned or signed yes basically it will mean that it's the u.s is more likely to kind of roll back some of those hard-fought laws that exist such as roe v wade which is um about women's right to have abortions yeah the reproductive health rights that pretty much i think rbg was seen as keeping them alive Alive, pretty much yeah coming back to the book so the handmaid's tale many people will be familiar with it because it has had a recent revival as a tv series on hulu um but the book is by margaret atwood and it's a dystopian tale of a future america which has been taken over by um fundamentalist christians um and it has become a country called gilead I think it's technically the US splits, um, so it's a sort of smaller country, um, but it's now Gilead, also a world in which chemical poisoning um, has in some way sort of made people less fertile. So women who are able to carry children are sort of a precious commodity. And as a result, fertile women are employed as handmaids and they must carry the children of senior commanders so these senior people within this society and the women who become handmaids are women who are considered to be sort of fallen women in some way or other so they are fertile but they have done something that is not christian so the main character who's called offred in her previous life she was married to a divorced man so that marriage was considered not real and therefore she was sinful and there's also women who've been prostitutes or women who've had children out of wedlock so all these sorts of things. Gosh. Yeah. I haven't read it in a long time, so I've completely forgotten that. It's a story uh, set in this dystopia, and it follows Offred, who is, is is the main protagonist. And she's called Offred because the commander, the senior political figure she, she works for, or was enslaved to, really, is called Fred. So she, her name has changed. So her name is taken away from her. She becomes of Fred or Offred. And yeah, it just follows her story. And at the same time, through flashbacks sort of tells the story of how America fell and how this sort of totalitarian Christian group became the leaders of this new Gilead. And and what it's often praised for is is its sort of unsettling feeling of, of reality and that it doesn't the way that um, Margaret Atwood writes the the downfall of the modern America and the rise of um, Christian fundamentalism just feels scarily possible mm. um so she wrote it in 1986 but i think as everyone says it feels just as prescient now and if not horrifyingly more so if not horrifying more so i mean as i was saying very recently the last day or two um ruth bader ginsburg has died and if we have a republican president which we currently do they can shovel in someone who's much more right wing and that threatens laws like Roe v. Wade and that is something in America which is still very controversial and could very easily be undone you know also things like LGBTQ rights as well like gay marriage all sorts of equal rights laws and things become 
threatened. So anyway, coming back to the book, what Margaret Atwood does so well is make it feel very easy and very real. And I read a couple of essays by her um, in preparation for the podcast, and she was talking about the fact that she, so she wrote the book while she was living in West Berlin, um, so it's before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so she was kind of living in a place still affected by sort of post-war politics I guess and she was also felt very close to the war so she was herself was born in 1939 so she was a very young child during World War II but still had experience of it and presumably growing up you know it was very close to people who had real stories of war and she said that that meant that she was just very aware of how easy it is for totalitarian dictatorships to arise and for fascism to arise and just because you live in a western democracy doesn't mean that you are protected you know you just need a certain series of events and you will have a a totalitarian dictator leading your country and people are going to suffer as a result so she said living in west berlin at the time kind of influenced a book and she was thinking about you know what would what what kind of authoritarian leadership could could rise up in in America and she said that that most totalitarian governments don't just come out of nowhere they they build on existing cultural bases things that might have been pushed down and and pushed aside and where and progress might have been made but the foundations are there and she said in America that's puritanism that's you know the, the pilgrims and their puritan nature and their attitudes to women and their attitudes to um reproduction and and in reliance on the Old Testament rather than the New Testament. Um, and so she thought that's what, that's how, yeah, a totalitarian mm. dictatorship would rise up in, in the US. It'd be building on that culture. So that's what she did with the book. So anyway, anyone, it's in the kit because it is a cautionary tale. It's a reminder of how any progress we make in women's rights or, or other rights is is never precarious. safe. Yeah. yeah, precarious, exactly. And we should watch out and not you know get blinkered and not get too comfortable and always vote and always campaign and well i always think as well my pet peeve is when people see time as being something that creates more liberation they're like Mm. oh that's the old days this is now so the old days are old-fashioned quote the new days are modern and that's a means different things when it's like no things can go backwards things and it's always about you know you always have to fight for your rights Otherwise, you know, you could see a future where things have gone back. I think there's a sense of complacency around particularly women's rights and things like the right to vote and how Mm. it's like, oh, well, of course that was going to happen eventually. It's like, no, it's it's because the suffragettes worked so hard to make it happen and had to change a lot of mindsets. And if that hadn't happened, we might still not have the right to vote. And I find that very frightening. And yet the fact that this book is resonating so much more now is terrifying because it was written in the 80s. It was written 40 years ago. I know. And... There's a placard that went around on Twitter when the, the, the Women's March happened in New York, you know, when, just after Trump got mm. in, and someone had had a placard, and someone had been like, I can't believe I'm still protesting this same Yeah. Beeped out for the podcast. Yes, there's been a huge amount of progress in the last 40 years, but really, like, yeah. why are we still here? We're still clinging on to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get comfortable. Yeah. Um, enjoy life, but always yeah. be wary. <laughs> Yeah, we could not be picking a more terrifying time to record this because obviously, yeah, RBG has just died and the election's going to happen in November. I per- I don't have been reading a huge amount of whether or not it's looking like Trump's going to get re-elected. I don't know what the implications are. My understanding from the little bits I've read are that basically they're kind of neck and neck. Oh. Or like, I think Biden is ahead, but as we all know from Brexit and we know from Trump, you can't trust yeah, the polls. you can't trust anything. So you can't believe you it. You can't hope for nice things because they won't come. Yeah. 
not that Biden's necessarily the nicest thing in the world, but yeah. yeah. The the other thing I was saying, Handmaid's Tale, before handing over to your last book, is mm. something that does really well in the role of Serena Joy. So in the book, as I said, are Offred, who's who tells the story. The senior commander has a wife in infertile, hence the need for the handmaid. But the yeah, the the wife is Serena Joy, and you learn that she, prior to Gilead being established, she was a kind of speaker and gospel singer um, in the tv show she's um i think sort of more of an activist for gilead but in the book she's yeah i think she's a gospel singer and she does kind of a bit of speaking but anyway what i think atwood does really well in the, with the character of serena joy is her representation of a certain type of woman who is often very privileged in a position of wealth and high education who is supportive of very non-progressive views and I think because it doesn't the implications are not bad for her Mm. and it's an inability to view the world through other lenses and I don't know if you have seen Mrs America on BBC no I've heard I've heard it's quite controversial is it I I heard that some people didn't like it but I wasn't really sure why but I enjoyed it as a drama it's based on on real life people I mean it's a fictionalized account of sort of late 60s feminism in particular focusing on the the fight in America for the enactment of the Equal Rights Act. Anyway, and there's this woman called Phyllis Schlafly who is a Republican right-wing woman and she campaigns against the Equal Rights Act and she gathers together an army of other Republican women to kind of fight against the feminists. And there, there felt like a lot of parallels between sort of Serena Joy as a character and someone like Phyllis Schlafly and other sort of right-wing women like you know Sarah Palin and Margaret Thatcher (laughs) yeah like all these women that they are women that actually have a lot of choices in life so actually the sorts of things the sorts of laws and and the rights that feminism fights for they don't think there's a need for it because they have choice because of their wealth and their position so yeah and they maybe don't see their well we talked about this a bit in the time travel episode when we were talking about forgotten the book but i was talking about the other this other book called they were her slave and it talks Mm. about um the way that black women were used by white women as kind of reproductive tools so they would you know nurse Mm. their children or they would they might give birth and the white woman would steal the baby or something it was very much in a similar way to The Handmaid's Tale, that they're literally just a walking woo. Yeah. Um, because am I, am I right in remembering that even the sex is like this ritualistic thing where they yeah. lie under a sheet and the woman's there and... Yeah, it's really disturbing. Yeah. But yeah, it's literally the the women are... They're just, the handmaids are reduced to their, yeah. their, yeah, their ability to carry a child. Yeah. Um, and it's a strange sort of... In some ways they have privileges because of that. So they have freedoms that other women in that society don't have. Mm. But that comes with ritual rape and you know no actual sort of autonomy you're allowed to do things but you can't actually choose your own your own thing so yeah um, terrifying horrible (laughs) yeah you sort of this the sorts of women i think who propagate these ideas are often women who yeah have the luxury of choice in their life trash wives over them course yeah and i just i find it hard to relate to someone who would have those that, that viewpoint it is yeah it is bonkers so yeah that would be my 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 third and final book which is a, a dystopian future that presents the potential that all these hard-won freedoms that we do enjoy are as you say precarious. well speaking of dystopian futures or rather utopian futures 
I want to talk about a book that Atwood talks about being her inspiration Ooh. for. My third book is a book called Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. Have you heard ah. of it? Piercy is a famous American writer and social activist. Yeah. And this is considered to be a feminist masterpiece. And, mm-hmm. and the part of the reason I think Atwood derived so much from it is because all over the jacket of my book is like Atwood quotes being like this is so just everything but it is very different to The Handmaid's Tale now I'm cheating I haven't actually finished it I'm only 100 pages in so I'll only talk about what I've read so far I can't draw a conclusion about the whole book but and I've deliberately not tried not to read any articles about it or anything because Mm -hmm. I don't want spoilers so it follows a woman called Connie she is a Latinx woman and the book begins by her, sorry, I did say it was published in the 70s, right? So I assume this bit is set in the 70s. The book opens where she's beaten up by her niece's pimp. She is unjustly committed to a mental institution where uh, she's subject to involuntary druggings, electroshock therapy, all the works. There's mention of her having a history of being committed. She's had some bad relationships. She's been through, had issues of alcoholism. She's had a rough life. Mm. And she's also had this life where her gender and her race are very much used to disempower mm-hmm. her and used to... I mean, I find that an interesting topic anyway, which mm-hmm. I'll talk about in a minute. But going into the weird sci-fi aspect, and this is why it would have been a good book for our time travel episode, but she starts to be visited psychically. So she sort of starts seeing this person around, this kind of androgynous figure. She originally thinks it's a man. It turns out it's a woman called mm-hmm. Luciente. And Luciente tells her that she's from the future, or 2137 to be exact. And she says, I can bring you along to visit the future. We can visit each other's times. Mm. We're like connected. So Connie goes to the future with her. And the future is this kind of strange utopian world where hierarchies, sexism, gender roles don't exist. It's so even Luciente being, uh, Connie initially thinks she's a man because she's not dressed like a woman. So mm. she thinks, well, and then only when she goes to the future and Luciente tells her, well, we don't. We don't really have gender roles. We don't even really have names. We don't... Women don't really give birth naturally anymore. Everything's done, Mm. like, in test tube kind of ways. We are in this very, very equal society. And I also read on Wikipedia that it's a world in which a number of goals of the political and social agenda of the late 60s and early 70s radical movements have been fulfilled. So things like environmental pollution, sexism, consumerism. I was initially sceptical, because when you read a book that's written in the 70s Mm. about the future, you think, well... Are there going to be things like global warming? Yeah. It does actually, like, I think it's quite a good prediction of what a utopian future would look like where they don't live in this kind of capitalistic way that mm. we do and they live, they, they very much live off the land and compost everything and recycle everything. And well, as I say, I'm not too far in, so I don't know, but there is no mention of cities and these kind of big urban areas anymore. So there's a lot of stuff happening there. So in terms of why it's in my first aid kit, um, I find the subject of female incarceration very interesting and horrifying. And going back to what we're saying mm-hmm. about stuff that used to be the case that feminists have been fighting for is things around hysteria and madness ascribed to women who are seen to be deviating from the norm so there's a book called 10 days in a madhouse by Lenny Bly I don't know if you've heard of it it's a non-fiction book um, oh yes this was shown undercover yes Yes. so she went undercover into a a madhouse a women's lunatic asylum to expose the abuses happening within and you see it in all sorts of things like in you know we've talked before about the yellow wallpaper we've talked about Jane Eyre the mad woman in the attic there's Fingersmith by Sarah Waters Um, there's lots of books where women or people of lesser power are very easily incarcerated Mm. and that becomes that's obviously a big theme in woman on the edge of time as well so i think again it's just 
really important to be aware of achievements made so far in feminism and intersectional feminism particularly. I find it quite interesting that Marge Piercy is a white woman, but she's written from the perspective of a Latinx woman, Mm. and she's very much talking about her race. And I don't know, as I say, I haven't read anything about it, so I don't know if this is offensive or not. I don't think it is. But she is. She does talk about her race, and, and there's a particular moment where she talks. There's a bit where Connie's talking to a white male doctor, and the white male doctor is trying to get her to relive abuse mm. in her life, which she has suffered a lot of. And she's very much an imperfect character as well. And Connie kind of has the offhand thought that you know white men seem to really relish hearing about brown women being beaten up, mm. and it's kind of very horrifying look at race relations and gender and things so um but yeah i haven't read any more so i don't know where it's gonna go who knows maybe by the end i'd think well i'm not gonna read this anymore as a woman but i think it has this status of being a feminist masterpiece Mm. so i think it's gonna be quite an interesting read yeah i think that's an interesting concept of a utopia as well that you wouldn't have any gender roles at all i don't i i guess it's really hard to imagine because it's so ingrained. Yeah. It shouldn't matter, I guess. Like, why would it matter? Why do you need gender roles in the first place? Um, what that would even look like. If women didn't have... If women didn't need to reproduce is an interesting thing. So, yes. There and, is, and um, I think, sorry to just say, but I mm. think there is a moment where she says that was the, the one thing that we took away straight away in order mm. to equalise society is the roles yeah. around reproduction and it's so interesting that Margaret Atwell goes in the complete other direction of it yeah sorry carry on yeah no it's just because so there's a couple of different research teams who the year, last year or the year before have been developing artificial wombs so there was a team that birthed a sheep that had been entirely mm. grown in an artificial mm. womb you know this isn't science fiction it's I think that you know their ambitions are to create something where you could farm animals in a different way which is potentially a bit gruesome as well i'm not sure that's i don't know i'm not sure how i feel about that but that's by the by the outcome could eventually be that yeah women don't even have to carry babies yeah. anymore but you know i know there are a lot of women who like that i have friends that are mums and not all of them but some of them like i think that's an empowering thing of like i think it's really powerful that i've carried a life it's part of being human and it's funny because the book I've just read actually is where Connie goes to visit in the future she visits one of these centres where they have all these artificial wombs and she comes away horrified because she talks to the people in the future about well who's who's the mother then and they say well you know every kid is kind of raised by all of us but Mm. I guess every kid is assigned like three mothers doesn't matter what gender they are yeah and Connie comes away being like that's not motherhood that's Mm. I don't know what that is and you know you could say that might be because she's so of a particular time and it's just that kind of clash of these future ideals mm. but she very much is like no you can't claim to be a mother unless you've been through the process of you know all that stuff which is problematic because it does imply that you can't be a mother mm. if you haven't been through that but but it is that thing where connie's upset by that she's not like oh wow what a freedom that would yeah. be she's actually like that's pretty awful and yeah. I, I would not like that personally i would want to carry my own children and and then be their mother. Mm. I don't know how realistic it is. <laughs> well, you know, what, 2137? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like if things went in the right direction-ish in terms of particularly around environmentalism. Yeah. Could it end up in this kind of way? And but and part of the reason I found it had a lot of foresight is around gender roles, particularly around non-binary, because mm. the characters, they don't really have any sort of binary gender assigned to them. Or they, yeah. or they do, but they don't really... It isn't such a huge part of their identity, and I wonder if... I think that's quite interesting that she was writing about that in the 70s mm. and that is becoming more of a thing now. 
the gender is very clinical in the book mm. so it's very much like they don't even say women and men they're like I'm, f- I'm a female and I'm a male mm. and it's very much like this is just a side effect of our birth but really we're all people yeah. and I guess that's kind of what the dream is but then, yeah. but then that is yeah it becomes a real thing like and going back to I think Chimamanda does that really well of you can still be feminine mm. and you can still want to be sexually desirable as a woman yeah. and it shouldn't be used to disempower you yeah and so if we're taking that away does that become a real mishmash of like yeah. I, I don't know it's, like, it's about celebrating your differences but being yeah. made sure everyone's equal yeah. then again it comes down to a conversation that is way too complicated yeah. for now but around like what does gender even mean like well, yeah. it, gender is gender just the way we present gender or is mm. it something else and I'm not going to get into that yeah so should I we think we should probably wrap up. How long is um, that? You don't want to know. Oh God! <laughs> I knew we'd have a lot to say. I think it's a useful exercise actually to highlight what I haven't read because I came across a lot of books in research. That was, that's really interesting. I should read that, or that's a seminal text on feminism, mm. and I should probably read it at some point. And I think we'll definitely need a part two and a part three. Oh, oh part three, yeah. Bring some guests in. How did you find it kind of preparing? There were so many books that I was like, we, I'd, li- I'd like to do even more. I'd like to pick more or less obvious choices mm. or books that are not necessarily marketed as being about being a woman, but yeah. they have interesting thoughts in there about being a woman. And yeah, books maybe written by men and maybe books about men mm. to show the contrast. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I would say that something we haven't really talked about is very much we've touched on is sort of intersectionality and yeah i mean i am very aware that the books i've chosen are the fictions i've chosen are by white women and feature predominantly white women i wondered if you were going to pick girl woman other i thought that would be a good one yeah i I thought if anything i thought it was too obvious so i was like i'll steer away from that yeah i mean i I guess i should i guess i think i felt like just i had more to say about the other ones because they're so i know them so well yeah but there's also part two there's definitely a certain perspective i'm getting from these particular examples that is not you know reality for a lot of people Mm. but that's why it's so important to have books books (laughs) written by diverse authors books are good the end (laughs) read so that's everything for today. I definitely think that we're going to have a part two, a part three, yeah. a part ten on this one. But God has kick-started thinking about the, ki- the kinds of books we might Give take. Give our daughters. Yeah. Put in our first aid kit for whoever it is that is entering yeah. into womanhood. If you have liked listening to our recommendations, our discussions, do recommend us to friends and family. You can follow us at First Aid Lit on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast mm. on your and leave reviews one. and leave reviews <laughs> on your favorite podcast provider. You'll probably be the one and only <laughs> review so far. <laughs> but we'll see you next time. Bye.